excited about uh, what we're talking about tonight, finishing uh, this part of our, our topic on depression, because this is the real good stuff. So last week we kind of started on, on some things that contribute to it. We're going to finish that, but then we're going to get to the, the really good stuff, and so I'm excited about that. Unfortunately, we had an issue with our recording last week, so that podcast is not up. I'm going to try to review as much as I can tonight. I've got a lot to cover, so I'm going to have to move quick, but I'm going to touch on what we talked about last week, kind of review that a little bit, and then we'll dive in, and I'm just going to get started because i got a lot to cover, and we're going to go for it, but last week I told you that what you're hearing in these messages, a lot of what you're going to hear has come from a book I read while I was on vacation called Out of the Cave uh, by Chris Hodges. And again, if you're a reader, or even if you're not, I encourage you get this book. Uh, this book challenged me in a lot of ways, gave me a lot of insight, and it's really a lot of what I'm teaching tonight. And so if you want the rest of the story, uh, get that book. I encourage you to get that book. But I shared this quote with you last week Depression has become the world's number one health problem, causing more deaths than cancer each year and ranking as the leading cause of disability. One out of every nine people are on some type of depression treating medication, and one out of every five people have been at some point. Over the past decade, antidepressant use has gone up 300%, and it's continued to increase. And we talked about how medication alone is never enough to really heal that and that drug use has gone up over the years, it's skyrocketed, and this hasn't gotten better. This issue hasn't gotten better. So there's more to that. There's more to that healing, and we talked a little bit about that. Uh, We always have the power to make choices in our life. Even when we're at the lowest of low, we have the power of choice. We can always make decisions. We talked last week about how we are three-part beings. We have a body. That's our visible form. We've got a soul, it's our mind, our will, and our emotions, and then we have a spirit, and this reflects how we're made in the image of God, and this is the part of us that gets to live forever with Him, and this is the foundation. When we're talking spiritual warfare, we got to understand this. we got to understand these three parts, because our spirit needs to be in charge. If our body is in charge, our priority is about satisfying our physical needs, right? The lust of the flesh, the, the things that feel good. If it feels good, I'm going to do it. That's what happens when our body's in charge. When our soul is in charge, it becomes about the things we value. What do we value? Is it, is it fame? Is it fame that we value? Is it wealth? Is it beauty, power, control? When our soul's in charge, we drive on those things. Those are the things I'm going to grab. Those are the things I'm chasing. But when our spirit's in charge... The priority is achieving peace, a life of peace in God's presence. And that's where we all need to be. I'm sure that's where we all want to be, if we're honest. But our spirit is what keeps our our body and our soul in check. We need that. We need to stay in check. And the body and soul get what they need, but they don't battle for dominance. That's the end goal. And we talked about how that's a lifelong journey of sanctification. No one's getting there overnight. We'll always be wrestling. Uh, You read Paul. He wrote so much of the Bible. But even he said, why do I do the things that I don't want to do? We're always going to be wrestling here. But I want to talk about this story a little bit we talked about last week before I'm going to kind of recap this story. I'm not going to read it all. But we went to 1 Kings and we talked about Elijah. We looked at 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. If you want to write those down, those chapters, uh, you can go back and read a lot of this later. And I'll be showing you some of it tonight. 
But basically, there was this big showdown. And, and so King Ahab, who was the king of Israel at that time, him and the people, they worshiped the, the false god Baal, the god of power. And they believed that he controlled the rain, that he was this powerful being. And so there's this showdown. Ahab gets all of his prophets of Baal together. And then there's Elijah by himself. And he represents the one true God. And up to this point, Elijah had prayed for no rain, for a drought, and the rain stopped. And so now they're having this big showdown. Whoever can call fire down from heaven and burn up this offering, that's the true God, right? And so Elijah embarrasses the prophets of Baal. They go all day doing all their antics and things. Nothing happens. Elijah prays, fire engulfs this whole sacrifice. It's this amazing moment. But after this, Ahab and his wife Jezebel are angry because they're trying to kill all the prophets of God. And so Elijah gets a message. 1 Kings 19, 3-4, Elijah was afraid and fled for his life because Jezebel wanted to kill him. He went to Beersheba, the town in Judah, and left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness. Traveling all day, he sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors. So the same guy who called fire down from heaven, not long after, is, is sitting by himself wishing he was dead. So he had slipped in to this depression. And then in James 5:17, we read, Elijah was as human as we are. He was every bit as human as we are. What does that tell us? We can get there too, right? And so that's kind of where we started. And we talked about some contributing factors to depression. Number one, being a life imbalance. Number two, comparison. And we went through those. The next are rumination and isolation. When we talk about life imbalance, in their official statement for World Health Day in 2017, the United Nations announced we need to talk less about chemical imbalances and more about the way we live. More and more experts agree that depression often results from the way we live our lives. And I read you this quote, we were never designed for the sedentary, socially isolated, sleep-deprived, poorly nourished, indoor frenetic pace of modern American life. If we don't take control of our own lives, somebody else will. When we talk about life balance, and I read you a story in Daniel chapter 5 about how God had warned this king. He had literally, in this, the spookiest way, a hand appeared and wrote on the wall. And the things he wrote was telling him that your days are numbered, your life has been weighed, and your kingdom's going to be divided. And so we talked about how that is a warning for us, too, to remember our days are numbered that we need to take inventory of our lives, inventory of the things we're doing, the way we're spending our time, our money, our energy. And if we don't, we'll be divided to the point of falling apart because we can only take so much. Number two was comparison. First Kings 19.4, then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said, take my life. Why? Because I'm no better than my ancestors that came before me. He was looking at them instead of looking at what God had called him to, comparing himself to those that have gone before him instead of looking at where God was taking him. And we spend hours scrolling through social media. I said it last week, but, but looking at people's highlight reels and comparing it to our day-to-day, -day. looking at people's best, but looking at our worst 
And we spend so much time in that comparison cycle and it'll just kill us if we're not careful because we need to know what God says about us, what his word says about us. And so that's where we left off. Uh, I wish I had more time to recap a little more, uh, but that's where we left off. I'm going to pray and we're going to dive in to these next two tonight. Father, I just thank you for your presence that's already here. Lord, your word, your word says when two or more are gathered in your name, you were there. So I pray for every person in this room, whatever they came in thinking about you, that you would remind them that because they showed up, they're in the presence of God. Because they showed up, they're in the presence of God and they made that decision. I pray that you honor that decision today. Lord, that you speak to us. We love you and it's in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you ready for number three? Rumination. Rumination is number three. This is the third contributing factor we're going to talk about. And I want to start with a quote. 95% of your emotions are determined by the way you talk to yourself. 95% of your emotions are determined by the way you talk to yourself. We've talked about this idea before, but the way you talk to yourself matters. And I know if you're talking to yourself, you may look a little crazy. I don't mean necessarily out loud. Some of you may need to do that, and that's okay. But the, your inner dialogue, it's important. As a pastor, when I wrap up like a Wednesday night like this where we've been working all day or, or a long day on Sunday where we have services that morning and then prayer night that night, a lot of times what happens is, is I come home and I, I start playing back the day in my mind or playing back the conversations I had or what I said to this person, should I have done it that way or, or maybe I should have talked about this instead or was anybody even listening to this point or, or maybe I hurt their feelings there and I'm sure I'm not the only one that when you get home at the end of the day, you're playing it all back. I like to critique myself probably more than anyone else would ever critique me and sometimes, just hear me out, sometimes in ministry, it, it's like being a duck. So what I mean is when you look at a duck on a pond, they're just gracefully gliding. But underneath that water, those little feet are going like crazy. Anybody ever been there before? Like that's how you feel any given day. And so inevitably when you're, when you're going at that pace and, and your feet are kicking and you can't show that to anybody and you get home and you're done, there's a crash, right? You have that adrenaline crash. And sometimes that can be a dangerous place for us to be. It can be easy for that to pull you into a darkness, pull you into a depression. And you need to be aware of that. You need to be aware of that in yourself, aware that that can happen. And my wife and I had a conversation about this recently where, where it was like God just showed me, hey, this is what's going on inside of you. You should probably do something about it. And so I, I know I can get there, so I know everybody can get there. If you're not careful with what you do in that time, with how you talk to yourself and how you navigate and make those choices, you can end up in that dark cave of depression. And a word that experts use to kind of describe this inner dialogue is rumination. And so to ruminate means to ponder something deeply and thoroughly. This same word is used to describe how a cow eats. And so when a cow eats, chews it up, swallows it, regurgitates it, chews it up, swallows it, and so on and so forth. That is the same word we're talking about. This is what we do in our minds. 
I chew up the day, I stop thinking about it, I come back to it, I chew it up again, I stop thinking about it, and if we're not careful, that cycle can be a little dangerous and a little gross. And so, (laughs) when combined with regret, and that's kind of the important part here, critiquing yourself isn't a bad thing, but when it's seasoned with regret, it can cause us to fixate on the symptoms of our distress instead of the solutions. It'll cause us to fixate on the symptoms instead of the solutions. And we'll fixate on problems or relationships, looking for insight so we can control. Anybody else like to control things? Is that just me? But these cycles of negative self-talk often create problems where they didn't exist before. And that's what's important here. We create problems where we didn't have them before because we're playing these things and writing stories that never existed because we won't stop chewing on it and look at what God says. Research has shown that the habitual rumination results in many negative consequences, including depression, anxiety, PTSD, even addiction. Because instead of going to the right place, our natural reaction is to quiet that self-analysis and drown it out with something else. Even to the the simplicity of sitting in front of the TV for hours when you get home so you don't have to think about that stuff. You can drown it out instead of letting God talk to you about it. One of the most dangerous things about rumination is it can cause us to turn uncertainty into emotion and miss actual facts. And that's kind of the important point here. How do we combat this rumination? Part of that is looking at what's actually true. Let's go back to Elijah 1 Kings 19, 1 through 4. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah, May the God strike me down, even kill me, if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Elijah was afraid, fled for his life. He went to Beersheba in a town in Judah and left his servant there. He went on alone. And he said, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors. So this is what we reread. This is what God gave us here in Scripture. But I'm sure Elijah was playing everything over in his mind, wrestling with this, you know, God, I did all this for you. I did all these great things, and this is what I get for it? This is probably the story he was, I can only imagine that's what he was thinking in this moment, because I'll be honest, that's probably what I would have been thinking if I were in his position. Why had this happened? Why, if I've done so much for you, God, are you allowing this to happen? But instead of looking at the truth, what he knew was true, he was focusing on other things. So there's three things that rumination will do, three things it'll do to you. Number one, It'll allow your feelings to define your life and dictate your actions. It allows our feelings to define our lives and dictate our actions. Number two, it makes us harder on ourselves than we should be. And number three, it causes us to exaggerate the negative. And I don't have time to divulge this out fully, but I'm going to hit on a couple things here. Let's go to verses 9 and 10 of 1 Kings 19. But the Lord said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Because he spent so much time ruminating on the negative, Elijah didn't have his facts straight. Earlier in this book, 
we read that there were a hundred prophets of God that were hidden, that were protected, that were safe. So here he is complaining that he's the only one, and there's at least another hundred prophets out there doing just fine. But all he sees is his own situation. All he sees is that I'm alone, I'm miserable, help me. And his fear had led him to this place, completely driven by emotion, completely driven by emotion. All it took was one threat, one threat from someone who wasn't even present to send him off running to be alone. And and where he sat and he thought about being the only one, there's no point in living. Instead of focusing on the facts and choosing where to go, he allowed his emotions to distort the facts and lead him to this place. And so that's what can happen. The more we think about things, sometimes the more the story changes. And the more we create these thoughts and ideas that, that never existed, when all it would take is going to the right source to get clarity, choices always need to lead us. Feelings will follow. I say that all the time. But choices lead. Feelings will follow. And I wish I could spend more time here, but number four is isolation. Rumination and isolation. And I'm only going to touch on this for a minute because it'll kind of lead into our next section. But when we go back to verses 3 and 4, it says he left his servant there and went on alone into the wilderness. Alone to sit by himself. It was when Elijah was alone and there was no one to encourage him, no one to challenge him that he slipped into his depression because he was alone. And we will never be truly fulfilled unless we have other people on the journey with us. We'll never be truly fulfilled as long as we're alone. Genesis 2.18, God made man and then he said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. You know, you think about the story of creation. Everything God made, he said, was good. The only thing that wasn't good is that man was by himself because we were never designed to live that way. We need people in our lives that we can share our hearts, our struggles, our secrets, our desires with. So the four contributing factors that lead to depression are our life imbalance, comparison, rumination, and isolation. And another way to say this are, are these are the four things we've got to manage. We've got to have a balance in life. We've got to be careful how we think, how we talk to ourselves, and we can't be alone. But these are the things we have to step out of. We've got to step out of life and balance, step out of comparison, step out of rumination, and step out of isolation. But that's not enough. There's some things we've got to step into because just getting away from the problems is never going to heal you. You've got to step into the right things. And so that's what we're going to spend the rest of the time on tonight. What are you going to step into What are you going to go into? And so I've got this all kinds of backwards, and I'm just going to lay that out there right now, just the way it worked out. I'm going to give you two, three, and four first, okay? And then we'll go back to one, because number one is where we got to start, and it's the most important. So cliffhanger. We're going to start with with number two, three, and four. So solutions that we step into. Number two is a true identity. Number three is a new assignment. And number four is relational strength. Anybody curious what number one is? You have to wait. So a true identity. Let's start there. When we know who we really are in Jesus, nothing else can fully satisfy us. When we know what being with Jesus and who we are in him looks like, 
None of that's going to satisfy us anymore. It just can't because Jesus is so fulfilling. There's nothing that even comes close to comparing to him and what he has planned for us. 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the spirit of the Lord. That's where we all want to be, being transformed daily by Jesus, created to be what he wants us to be. What you believe about yourself is foundational. What you believe about who you are is foundational. And the real you can only be found by connecting with God. The only one qualified to define you is the one that created you. And you need to know that. The only one that's even qualified to define you is the one that created you. We're not even qualified to define ourselves. Only God can define who we are and what we're called to. Scripture will tell you, it'll tell you exactly who you are in Christ, that you're a masterpiece, that you're created in his image for good things that he planned for you a long time ago. It'll tell you everything about who you are, but you got to get in it. You got to engage with the word of God. You're never going to know who you are or what you're called to do if you never open the book. That's just a a hard fact right there. You're never going to know who you are and what you're called to do unless you open the book. If you get in the book and you engage in the word, God will begin to reveal to you who you are, not just the things he wants you to do because he's a relational God. He'll show you who you are, why you're here. Number three is a new assignment, a new assignment. 1 Kings 19, starting verse 13. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied again, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. I love what God does here because he doesn't correct him. God knows. God knows he's wrong. God knows he's whining. But he doesn't correct him. He says, go back the same way you came. Travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazael to be the king of Aram. So when Elijah's broken, when he's ruminating, when he's complaining, when he's hurt, God gave him a purpose. God gave him a purpose, an assignment, a new thing to do. God didn't condemn or rebuke him. He gave him a mission. And when we connect with God, he gives us purpose. And so many of us are are walking through this life having no idea what we're supposed to do, what we're called to do, why we even exist on this planet. And God's the only one that can tell us those things. We have to connect with him to know what we're supposed to do. We need a purpose to stay out of the rumination trap to stay out of the cave of depression. We've got to have a purpose. We've got to step into that purpose to be fulfilled. Number four is relational strength. And we talked about the danger of isolation a minute ago, but it's more than just making sure we're not alone because you can be in a crowd of people and it do no good for you. We need to pursue and protect strong, life-giving relationships. 1 Kings 19, 19 through 21. So Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing a field. 
There were 12 teams of oxen in the field, and Elijah was plowing with the 12th team. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak across his shoulders and then walked away. Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah, and said to him, First let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye, then I will go with you. Elijah replied, Go on back, but think about what I have done to you. So Elisha returned to his oxen, slaughtered them. There's no turning back after that. He said, I'm literally killing my job. It's gone. I'm coming with you. He passed around the meat to the townspeople. They all ate, and then he went with Elijah as his assistant. What did Elijah do? He had been in this place, and God sent him on this mission to get somebody with him. That was where God sent him to get someone to come alongside him and to help him. And from this point on in Scripture, we never see Elijah alone again. We never see him sitting by himself again. And he even tries to leave Elisha at one point, and Elisha comes anyway, not like the servant he had before who, who stayed put. He said, I'm coming with you. I'm going to walk with you. And we need those people in our lives. One of the best ways to protect ourselves, we're talking about spiritual warfare here, one of the best ways to protect ourselves from the enemy is to make sure we have the right people in our corner. And I mean the right people. I don't just mean people. We got to have the right people in our corner, people that will pray for us, people that will fight for us, people that will call us out on our crap. Y'all got crap. I got crap. There's crap. We need someone that's going to call it out, right? Someone that'll say, Hey, what's going on with you? I've noticed you've been acting like this. What's going on with you? We need those people. Relationships are a key component to our spiritual growth. And if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. If you want to go far, whether in your spiritual life or in business or whatever it is you feel called to, if you want to go far in it, you're going to need somebody in your corner. You're going to need somebody walking with you. It's not good for man to be alone. This all kind of leads to number one, and I wanted to save it for last. It is the most important. It's the launch point. It's how we start this whole thing. Any lasting growth, it's going to start right here, and that's an encounter with God. It's an encounter with God. If we want to find freedom, healing, protection, if we want to find our, our purpose, our identity, or build healthy spiritual relationships, we need to step into an encounter with God. It's so important. And we can make all the right moves with our physical health and our mental health, but it's, it's not enough alone. The first thing God did for Elijah, we didn't read it, but when he brought him to this place, the first thing he did was feed him. He sent an angel to give him bread, and then he told him to sleep, and then he ate again, and he slept. And some of y'all, you just need a good nap, I'm telling you. Just need a good nap. But that's the first thing he did. God took care of his physical needs. He knew that Elijah was hurting. He knew that there was a problem here that he needed to deal with, but he fed him first. He made him rest first, and then he gave him purpose and then slowly started to deal with things. And I think some of you need to hear this tonight, but God's not mad at you. He's not mad that you messed up. I was reminded of a verse this week uh, Pastor Eddie had shared with us in a meeting that, that God remembers your dust. 
He remembers that we're weak. He remembers where we came from. So he's not mad at you for messing up. He just wants you to go to the right place. 1 Kings 19, 10 through 13. Band, you guys can come back up. But Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars. He goes through that whole thing again. And God says, go out and stand before me on the mountain. The Lord told him, and as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by. Many of you have probably heard this passage. And a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, went out, stood at the entrance of the cave, and a voice said again, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing? And I love this. I love this so much because Elijah had just told him. But God cared. God cared how he felt, what he was wrestling with, what he was struggling with, not to correct him, but just to hear his heart. Because he wanted to connect. No matter how ugly or how scary, he already knows anyway. He already knows. Why not share it with him? When we get to a place of honesty and desperation, we are primed for a powerful encounter with God. But I think there's a problem, especially in kind of in the church and our culture. But I think we tend to expect it to be so emotional and for it to be so powerful And we're waiting for God to just make us cry or make us fall over or do this when he just wants to whisper to our heart. He just wants to help us. And it doesn't have to be this big display. When God speaks, it's in quiet and it's in stillness. Not some dramatic demonstration of fire and power. The problem is we don't tend to get still enough to hear him. 1 Kings 19, 11 and 12. I want to read it again. Go out and stand before me on the mountain. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by. A mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast. The rocks were torn loose. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. The Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a sound of a gentle whisper. So we had just read when he's on Mount Carmel and has this big showdown and there is the fire and the Lord is there. That was for a purpose. God's always moving with purpose. On Mount Carmel, on that big display, God showed up for everyone. But on Mount Horeb and that whisper, God showed up for Elijah. And Mount Carmel, God was spectacular for everyone. But on Mount Horeb, God was spectacular for Elijah. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. I think that's where some of you are probably at tonight. Your spirit's crushed. I've been there. When we encounter God, we gain the confidence and ability to step out of our cave of depression. But having this encounter requires us to let go of our pride to show God the parts of us that really need some healing. And I can't stress the importance of this enough, but it's only by encountering God that we can see the truth about who we are 
and what he has planned for us. It's the only way. It's a journey. It's never immediate. It's going to take time. But when we encounter God's presence, it opens the door for all of it. It opens the door for him to do whatever he wants to do. I want to read you guys a story tonight. I want you to think hard about this. Her memory is sketchy because it happened right before her fifth birthday. But while playing in her backyard near a small mountain village in Colombia, South America, Marina Chapman remembers a sweaty arm grabbing her from behind, placing a hood over her head. She inhaled a strange chemical smell, lost consciousness. She remembers fighting to wake up as she was dragged into the jungle. As her captor pulled her deeper into the wilderness, branches and thorns scratched her skin. When her abductor finally stopped, he quickly tied her arms. Even as the dark hood stayed on, she felt her clothes being torn off as her assailant did unspeakable things to her little body. Then just as quickly as he had abducted her, he left her there on the ground, arms still tied, hood still on, clothes torn off to die in the jungle. Marina couldn't believe she was still alive. After struggling for several hours, she managed to free her hands and remove the hood. With night descending over the dense tropical foliage, she began to cry, still in shock and terrified by what had happened. The sounds of the jungle grew louder. A darkness enveloped her. Marina remained terrified, dozing and shivering throughout the night. Surely someone would rescue her, she thought. As dawn light finally pierced the green canopy overhead, but no one came. She was so hungry and tired and afraid. Her second night was spent much like the first, trying to remain awake and vigilant. Amid the cacophony of screeches, hisses, and primal cries, she began to believe she would die there. The third day, something phenomenal happened. A troop of capuchin monkeys saw Marina, and becoming more curious about this new, strange creature, they surrounded her. At first, they were hostile, running and charging at her, screaming and hitting her. But after realizing she posed no danger, they settled down. As they casually foraged for food, they wandered away, only to return and leave some fruit behind for her to eat. The next day they returned, so Marina decided to follow them in hopes of surviving by doing what they did. She began to exist by following a literal monkey-see, monkey-do kind of routine. When rain fell, the monkeys caught it in large leaves and drank it, so she did the same. She ate the ripe fruit they discovered, along with certain leaves, seeds, and berries. Three days turned into a week a week into a month, and a month turned into years. For more than five years, Marina lived in the jungle with the monkeys. After a while and much practice, Marina could climb up into the canopy of trees with her new family. She didn't speak to another human, had no contact with anyone, and soon her memories of being a little girl faded away. She began to speak the language of the monkeys with grunts, growls, squeaks, and hand motions. She learned to adapt and survive for years by living with the monkeys. And one day she noticed something. Scanning the jungle high from her perch on a tree branch, Marina saw light glinting on the ground below. Curious, she raced down to look for the source and discovered something shiny and silvery. She picked it up, tried to bite it, but then turning it over, she looked down and saw a pair of dark eyes looking back at her. Terrified, she threw it on the ground and ran away, assuming it was alive. From a distance, she watched it closely, and when it didn't move, she picked it up again, cautiously looked in the mirror. Her own eyes stared back at her. For the first time in five years, Marina Chapman saw another human being, herself. 
Even more startling, she realized how different she was from the monkeys or any other creature she had encountered in the jungle. She thought, I am not a monkey. I am not what they are. I was not made to be what they are. I don't know what I am yet, but I've had a glimpse of who I am now, and I know what I'm not. One glimpse of the truth changed the life she had accepted for herself. The mirror revealed who she was supposed to be. The mirror also showed her who she wasn't supposed to be. Marina went back to the monkeys, but she went back different from before. She returned with an awareness that she was made for more. Never again would she be satisfied living like the monkeys. Eventually, Marina was found by hunters who took her to the nearest city, traded her to a brothel, and returned for a parrot. Realizing she was being trained for prostitution, Marina planned her escape and never looked back. Eventually, she wrote a best-selling book, The Girl With No Name, describing her life in both the natural and urban jungles of Colombia. Now in her 60s, Marina lives in England where her favorite pastime is, you guessed it, climbing trees, only now with her grandchildren. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all with unveiled face, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Just like Marina, when we see who we really are, that we were made for more than this jungle we're living in, when we encounter the presence of God and see that there's a better way to live rather than living in this cave of depression, of anxiety, of worry, of fear, it changes us. I've never encountered God's presence and left the same. It doesn't make us perfect. We're still human, but we're never the same and we never forget. These moments can shape the direction of your life. One glimpse in the mirror of God's word can show you I wasn't meant to live this way. There's a better way for me to live. I want everybody to bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to give you guys an opportunity tonight. And that's all this is going to be. It's an opportunity. Not to have an emotional altar call experience, but to encounter God's presence. I'm not saying you won't feel anything, but just because you don't feel anything, it doesn't mean that God isn't there. He speaks in the stillness of our hearts. And so tonight, if you're in this room, and you felt that grip of depression on your heart, you've been in that cave and you just need to encounter God's presence and find healing tonight is for you. And if you've been anxious and worried and struggle with your identity, with who you are, with what you're supposed to do, tonight is for you. If you've been stuck in an addiction and you've lost hope of ever getting out of it, tonight is for you. And I don't know the full details of the journey you're going to need to take. That's not what tonight's about. I know it starts with an encounter. I know it starts with an encounter. And that God can give you those next steps, whatever they are. He can give them to you. So I'm going to keep it simple. I'm going to pray. And if any of those things I said are for you, or even if there's something else I didn't mention, and it's for you and you need to encounter him, I'm going to pray. And when I say amen, I want you to come forward to humble yourself and to watch him respond to you.
The word says if we draw near, he'll draw near right back. So this altar's open. I'm going to pray. I'm going to say amen. And as they lead us in worship, you can come forward. There's going to be people up here that can pray for you. Or if you just want to kneel and pray to God yourself, you can have that encounter. All you got to do is humble yourself. Father, I thank you tonight for your presence, that you are in this place, that you're ready to move and that you're ready to work. And it's not about how we feel, God, but it's about who you are and the truth of your word. So we claim truth right now that if we draw near to you, your word says you will draw near right back. And I pray for every person in this room that you would speak something to their heart tonight, exactly what they need to hear. You saw this moment a long time ago, God. You know what they're struggling with. You know what's hurting them. You know what they're stuck in and you know how to show them the way out. So right now, I pray that it would just start with an encounter, that you would show yourself and make yourself so real to every person in this room tonight. God, we love you. We thank you for it in advance. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.